Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCALP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. For today's show, I have five movies to review for you. Three of them are brand new in the sense that they have been released on January 12th, 2023. The other two are a little bit older, and I actually have a backlog of movies that I have to review for you. I'm definitely not going to get to all the movies that I saw over the break and while I've been doing the show last week where I did the best and worst movies of 2023, but I will eventually get to them. But having a backlog of movies is a really good problem to have in my case because some weeks I struggle to review my minimum three movies. And and I, I struggle, by that I mean that I struggle to actually make the time to see them and then form opinions about them. But I, as usual, I'm going to start with the newest films and the ones that are probably the most likely to be hits. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Mean Girls, which is a musical remake of the 2004 film, which is a modern-day teen classic. I didn't see this film when it was brand new in theaters, but when the 2004 version of Mean Girls, the original one, came out in theaters. It was a big box office hit, grossing $130 million worldwide on an $18 million budget. But it became an even bigger hit later when it was released on DVD, and it's still kind of that cult classic. I remember seeing that, at at least when I got it on DVD, and absolutely loving it, and there are some people in this world who love it more than I do. Which begs the question, if it's such a great movie, why remake it? And that is an excellent question. Well, Mean Girls did get a Broadway adaptation, a Broadway musical adaptation, that is, uh, courtesy of composer Jeff Richmond and lyricist Neil Benjamin, who actually returned to this movie to rework some of their songs for the film. But other than the songs that are added to it, and of course the different cast with the exception of Tina Fey and Tim Meadows reprising their roles as Ms. Norbury and Mr. Duval, respectively, there are not a ton of differences here that make the musical version of Mean Girls any different or any better than the original 2004 film. I think the people who are really big fans of Mean Girls, even bigger than me, would probably go to see this film, but chances are it's probably not going to be particularly memorable. But if you're interested, this movie follows Katie Heron, who moves to a Chicago suburb from Africa, who becomes a hit with the Plastics, who is an A-list girl click at her new school when she makes the mistake of falling for Aaron Samuels, the ex-boyfriend of Alpha Plastic, Regina George. So in this film... Angari Rice, who has been in some teen films before and done well in them, has taken over Lindsay Lohan's role of Katie Heron. And Regina George in this movie, rather than being played by Rachel McAdams, which is kind of impossible now since Rachel McAdams is in her 40s, but then again she was in her late 20s when she played a 16- or 17-year-old girl in 2004 and still did amazing in that role. In this movie, Regina George is played by Renee Rapp, And while Renee Rapp has had some acting experience, this is actually the first movie in which she has acted. Even though she does pretty well for being in her first film, she doesn't compare to Rachel McAdams. And actually, I thought Rachel McAdams was actually meaner in Mean Girls than um, Renee Rapp is in this iconic role. Also in... Some of the supporting roles include uh, B.B. Wood, who takes over Lacey Chabert's role as Gretchen Wieners, the second of the Plastics. And also there's Avantika, who is an Indian actress, who takes over the role of Karen, who was originally played in the original 2004 film by Amanda Seyfried. Let me just say that Rachel McAdams, Lacey Chabert, and Amanda Seyfried did an amazing job playing the Plastics. They were ditzy, and they were mean, and they also had a a really good 
human side to them. And while Renee Rapp, B.B. Wood, and Avantika do well in their roles, they really don't compare to the originals. And I'm, I'm trying not to repeat myself by saying that this movie doesn't compare to the originals because it has a very tough act to follow. But there were some things that I did like about this remake of Mean Girls, and there were parts that made me chuckle. For one, I liked how they embraced the idea that this is a musical and actually weren't ashamed in certain respects. And there was also one scene where you thought that Tina Fey's character was going to break into song, and then Tina Fey actually does something in the scene that actually cuts off the song. That part, I thought, was amongst the funniest parts in this film. And I think some of the other songs in the movie, while the cast played them very well... I kind of thought they sort of reiterated the the points of the film in the terms of how the character who was singing them was feeling a little bit too much. For example, I feel like Angry Rice doing a, a song about seeing this guy Aaron Samuels for the first time and being in love with him or be or being enamored by him went on a little too long. I think after about a minute or two, as she was still singing, I was thinking, okay, you like him, we get it. Can we move on here? And, and there were some other songs that stood out. For example, there's the part of Janice that was originally played in the original 2004 film by Lizzie Kaplan, who's played here by Ollie Cravalho, who is probably best known for playing the voice of Moana. It's great to see her get some screen time, and I think she does really well playing a rebel, even though she has a tough act to follow. But she has a really good song near the end of the film where she's expressing how she's feeling, and she sings the song very well. There's another song that actually Karen sings as uh, she's at the Halloween party that's not only very good, it's also very funny. But a lot of times I began to, as I was watching this film, compare it to the original. I do think that there are some things that make a 2024 film more relevant than the 2004 film in terms of technology and how some high schoolers are living their lives right now that are incorporated relatively well into this film. But at the end of the day, I was finding myself comparing this film to the original 2004 film more than I was being taken in by the story and its performances. And this film, try as it might, really doesn't compare to the original. I think there are some things to acknowledge about it, some songs that really worked, some characters who play their roles as well as the originals. But I just kept comparing, and it goes with that rule that Hollywood should follow that it hasn't been following in recent years, especially the Disney company, even though Disney is not responsible for this film, Paramount is. But the rule should be don't remake good films, remake bad films. But me, this Mean Girls from 2024 broke that rule. It didn't completely fail, but it still gets my rating of a strikeout because it really doesn't compare to the original. The original is 20 years old now or will be in a couple of months, and it's already a modern high school classic, and you don't remake that movie the same way you don't remake Fast Times at Ridgemont High or The Breakfast Club or Clueless or any other great high school movies. And the reason being is the original is already great, so why remake it? Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Beekeeper, which is the latest film starring Jason Statham. And for those of you who are listening to my show last week where I reviewed the best and worst films of 2023, you might have noticed that two films starring Jason Statham made my list of the worst films of the year. They were Meg 2, The Trench, and Expendables, or The Expendables 4. But admittedly, the reason those films weren't so bad weren't 
necessarily because of Jason Statham, although Jason Statham is typecast as an action hero tough guy, and for good reason, because it is a part that he plays very well. And the beekeeper is certainly no exception to that rule, but I will admit before I get into my review that the beekeeper is not nearly as bad as expend four bulls or Meg to the trench. And that is great. It is directed by David Ayers who has a spotty repertoire as a director. He's directed some noteworthy films like end of watch and fury, but he's also directed the mercurial films such as suicide squad and the tax collector which were well-received by some, but not by most. But in The Beekeeper, one man's brutal campaign for vengeance takes on national stakes after he is revealed to be a former operative of a power and clandestine organization known as Beekeepers. So the main character in this movie is Adam Clay, who's played by Jason Statham, who, when we're first introduced to him, is a beekeeper who lives in a rural area, in presumably in western Massachusetts. And he rents property on a farm that's owned by Eloise Parker, who's played by Felicia Rashad. And in the beginning of the movie, Eloise Parker finds that there's something wrong with her computer, or at least that there's a pop-up telling her there's something wrong with her computer. And she calls the 1-800 number that's on the pop-up, and she reaches a site that ultimately tells her that they're going to help her with her problem, but in, in reality, they actually scam her out of all of her money. And she takes her own life, and her daughter, who is an FBI agent named Verona Parker, who's played here by Emmy Raver Lampman, thinks initially that Adam Clay killed her mother. But then when Adam Clay is acquitted because of lack of evidence, Agent Verona Parker finds herself hunting Adam Clay because he is on a vigilante one-man mission to take down these internet scammers who caused Eloise Parker to ultimately take her own life. And I believe that the people who wrote this film... Uh, actually, the person who wrote this film, Kirk, Kurt Wimmer, may have either been scammed by some of these people himself or knows someone who's been scammed. And it probably shows because Adam Clay, Jason Statham's character, takes out his vengeance on this whole organization, taking lives, taking names, and also burning down buildings. And ultimately, his quest for vengeance against someone with whom he'd been working closely, leads him to a man by the name of Derek Danforth, who's played by Josh Hutcherson, who is also in, by the way, another one of my worst films of 2023, Five Nights at Freddy's. But like Jason Statham, the the fact that Five Nights at Freddy's was a bad film was not Josh Hutcherson's fault. But his character in this film, Derek Danforth, is not only the head of this organization that rips off innocent civilians of their money electronically, but he also happens to be the son of the President of the United States. And there is an associate of his by the name of Wallace Westwild, who was the former head of the CIA, who's played in this movie by Jeremy Irons, who basically tells Derek Danforth that there is nothing he can do for him because the beekeepers, even those that are retired, once they're on a mission to kill, they don't stop until their mission is complete. And it's great to see Jeremy Irons in this film because Jeremy Irons also adds some acting credibility to this film, and he also does well in the role that he's playing. And even though I don't condone violence or killing people, I was rooting for Jason Statham this entire way because not only does Jason Statham kick a great amount of ass, but he also is very funny in a deadpan way as he is doing it. And I was on board with Jason Statham from the very beginning. And also I could sympathize with Agent Verona Parker, again played by Emmy Raver Lampman, as A, her mother died, and B, she's also trying to do her duty as an FBI agent in stopping this beekeeper from taking the law into his own hands. 
I do think the ending left a little bit of a sour taste in my mouth in the, in the sense that the climax was a little too quick and the resolution of that climax also ended a little too abruptly. But overall, considering that Jason Statham and Josh Hutcherson were in some of the worst films of last year, for an action film to come out in January to be of this caliber is actually pretty remarkable because I went to this movie expecting the worst and I was largely entertained, not to mention rooting for somebody to take down these scammers who make a living out of ripping off other people. I love that kind of plot thread and I don't necessarily believe that these kind of people should be taken down the the Jason Statham way, but it is a lot of fun to watch, which is why I give my rating a, a which is why I give the movie The Beekeeper my rating of a high checkout. I do think that it's not exactly a thinking man's film, but it is fun for Jason Statham to be on his own and take on this mission himself. And it turns out he can create a more compelling mission by himself than he could with the assistance of Sylvester Stallone, Megan Fox, 50 Cent, and all the other unfortunate co-stars with him in Expendables. But The Beekeepers is a better film and a smarter film than it has any right to be, especially directed by David Ayer. But Kurt Wimmer wrote a pretty good script, which could be, which could have been a bit smarter and could have ended a bit more conclusively and solidly. But it is a fun ride, and I certainly had fun watching it. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Book of Clarence. And this is a film that takes place in Galilee during the days of Jesus. And it revolves around a man by the name of Clarence who, struggling to find a better life, is captivated by the power of the rising Messiah, who we all know is Jesus, and soon risks everything to carve a path to a divine existence. This movie is directed by and written by James Samuels, who previously had directed such films as They Die by Dawn from 2013, which I haven't seen, and The Harder They Fall from 2021, which I have seen. And both They Die by Dawn and The Harder They Fall were westerns. So James Samuel is deviating a bit from his usual repertoire to bring us a biblical comedy drama. And initially when I was watching this film, or at least when I'd heard about it, I presumed that this would be a farcical biblical story like Monty Python's Life of Brian. And there are some parallels you can draw between Life of Brian and this film, but Life of Brian is more farcical. It's still a razor-sharp comedy, even decades after it came out, over 40 years after it came out. But The Book of Clarence has some surprising depth to it, especially when the titular Clarence, who's played by Lakeith Stanfield, turns out to be the twin brother of Thomas, one of Jesus' 12 apostles, and Thomas is also played by Lakeith Stanfield. I guess either they're twins or they're brothers who have a striking resemblance, but I'm going to go as far as to say that they're twins, and they do differ in, shall we say, biblical ways. <laughs> and I don't know if Claire, I'm pretty sure Clarence was not in the Bible. Thomas definitely was, being one of the 12 apostles. But I don't know if Clarence was named Clarence because he was a brother of Thomas, and there's the Clarence Thomas reference there. I highly doubt that James Samuel, when he was writing this, decided to make sort of a tongue-in-cheek reference to Clarence Thomas because other than the fact that Lakeith Stanfield and Clarence Thomas are black, there's really no connection between either the characters Clarence and Thomas in this film and the controversial Supreme Court justice. 
But Clarence is, by and large, somebody who is in Galilee, who is making it his mission to just get by, by any means necessary. And he owes a lot to a hustler and a loan shark whose name is Barabbas, who's played by Omar C. And he and his friend Elijah, who's played by R.J. Kyler, are trying to make enough money to pay Barabbas back so that Barabbas will spare Clarence's life. And Clarence hatches up a way to get money in the sense that he is going around Galilee doing these sort of parlor huckster trips tricks on a soapbox to make people believe that he is the Messiah. And in being the Messiah, he will just, or people will just give him money and he'll eventually pay Barabbas back and have his life spared. So he visits some very familiar people in biblical times, particularly in the book of Matthew, including John the Baptist, who's played by David Oyelowo, and also the Virgin Mary herself, who's played by Alfre Woodard. And there, this movie has a terrific cast, and it consists primarily of people of color, which is probably which probably makes it the one of the most accurate biblical films ever. Because let's face it, in films like The Last Temptation of Christ, Jesus Christ Superstar, and many many other biblical films, Jesus is portrayed as a white man. And Jesus was born in the Israel-Palestine area, so there's no way he could have been a white person. Maybe unless you're Mormon or in complete denial, Jesus was a white person, but in reality, sorry to break it to you, Latter-day Saints, Jesus was not a white man. And I really appreciate the casting of this film being people of color, with the exception of the actor who plays Pontius Pilate, who's played by James McAvoy. And there's also another homeless man by the name of Benjamin who's who is credited in this film <clears throat> but he is in the film so briefly that his role might as well be considered a cameo. So I'm not going to reveal who he is, but he's a man who's mistaken for the Messiah once he gets cleaned up by well-meaning citizens of Galilee. And this movie has some terrific casting. As I said, David Oyelowo as John the Baptist was a very good casting choice. There's also Tayana Taylor, who's previously in the film 1001, which was one of my favorite films of 2023. It didn't make my top 10 list, but it was an honorable mention. And Tayana Taylor here plays Mary Magdalene. And there's an un- a relatively not as well-known actor by the name of Nicholas Pinnock, who plays the role of Jesus. And in a very good stylistic move, you don't actually see Jesus reveal his face until Mary Magdalene is actually almost stoned to death in one scene. But I think the revelation of Jesus' face could not have come at a better time here. And it's really unfortunate that this film was released in January because January is usually a time where it's either the greatest films that are going to be nominated for Oscars or the very worst films. But I was pleasantly surprised by The Book of Clarence. The parts that are funny here are not gut-bustingly hilarious, but they are wry and ironic in that really good sense. But there was a surprising amount of drama that made Lakeith Stanfield's main character of Clarence all the more sympathetic, even though he starts off with not great intentions in terms of keeping his head above water and sparing his own life. But there were some surprising moments of really palpable, palpable drama here that James Samuel incorporated into this film, while also paying tribute to a lot of the other biblical epics of the 50s and 60s, including but not limited to the Ten Commandments and Ben-Hur, just to name a few. But the Book of Clarence was a surprising revelation, which is why I give the Book of Clarence my rating of a knockout. I think that Lakeith Stanfield was the perfect lead role here for Clarence, as well as the Apostle Thomas, with whom he's... uh, um, 
who's his brother. But the other casting choices here, David Oyelowo, Alfre Woodard, Tayana Taylor, Nicholas Pinnock, were very great as well. But also, I think that James Samuel did an amazing job directing this film and writing this film and really made what I think will probably be considered a biblical classic later on, even though at its heart it is fictitious. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Night Swim, and this is the latest from Bloomhouse Productions. The film stars Wyatt Russell and Academy Award-nominated Irish actress Carrie Condon, who play a married couple who move into a an affluent neighborhood that has a swimming pool in their backyard and unbeknownst to them, that swimming pool is haunted and terrorized by an evil spirit. And the movie is directed by Bryce McGuire, who co-wrote this film alongside Rod Blackhurst and typical of Bloomhouse productions. This is a film that was made on a relatively low budget, or at least a budget that's below $20 million. And even though Bloomhouse productions have not, has not exactly made the best films, although they've made some great films like get out, or at least they've, you know, produced and released such films. A lot of their films have been made on a minuscule budget and to their credit, they've made a ton of money at the box office. This is a film that I think will continue to do very well at the box office, but in terms of its quality, it's not particularly good. The reason being because it's not that the special effects aren't, aren't good. They're actually pretty good in some regard, but there are a lot of scenes in this film where it should occur to the main characters when they hear that grumbling voice or when they hear something strange coming out of the pool drain to just get out of the pool and run as fast as you can, if not dry off first. But this movie doesn't give their characters who are supposed to be intelligent really that kind of benefit of the doubt when it comes to their thought processes or what their thought processes should be. It does have some acting credibility in Carrie Condon playing the matriarch of this nuclear family of four. And Carrie Condon is a very celebrated Irish actress who made waves last year for being nominated for Best Supporting Actress for The Banshees of Inna Sharon, which was an excellent film, let alone an excellent Irish film. And Wyatt Russell, Wyatt Russell in this film, while not Academy Award nominated, does pretty well playing the patriarch of the family, who is a retired baseball player who's starting a new life with his family. But there are the, the things that don't make this film work are particular scenes where children in this film are swimming alone after their parents specifically tell them not to swim alone. And that goes for adults too. That's one rule about swimming, whether it's in a pool or in a lake or in the ocean, never go swimming alone. If you are going to go swimming while you're the only one in the body of water, you better make sure that somebody is watching you. But the parents tell these kids not to go swimming alone they go swimming alone, and then this this haunted occurrence happens to them. Then they alert their parents about the strange occurrings that happened in this pool. And the parents don't say, didn't I tell you not to go swimming alone? It, it really doesn't make a ton of sense. Plus, there's another scene where there's the teenage girl in the family who's played by 
Emily Hoferley, who is playing Marco Polo in the pool with a guy she likes, the swim captain named Ronan, who's played by Elijah Roberts. And the two of them have good chemistry together, but there's a scene where the two of them are playing Marco Polo, and the spirit in the pool is saying the polo part. And let me assure you that the spirit who's saying polo is <laughs> A, sounds nothing like Elijah Roberts, B, sounds like a heavy metal singer, and C, apparently has no effect on the teenage girl in this film. So when she's going closer to the spirit who's saying polo, you know she's going to, something bad's going to happen to her, and it does, but what really kills the momentum of this scene is the fact that if anybody else was in the scenario, they were playing Marco Polo with their eyes closed, and they heard somebody saying, Polo, while they're in the pool, their first inclination better damn well be to get their ass out of the pool as quickly as possible. But that doesn't happen. And also, there's a younger son in this in this family whose name is Elliot, who's played by uh, Gavin Warren, who overall does pretty well, except for the scenes where he's in the pool. For example, there is a scene where he hears a voice coming out of the drain and kind of similar to the movie It, and not to mention the Stephen King book upon which it's based, you would think that if you heard a voice coming from the drain, your first instinct is to run like hell. Well, the benefit of the doubt could be work, could be better utilized towards the movie It, especially given the circumstances. But in this film, th- that occurrence doesn't occur to this kid. And I feel like in every other instance, this family is generally pretty smart and has a good grasp of common sense. But in this movie, when they're in the pool, they don't have that common sense. And the reason they don't have that common sense is because of contrivances from the screenwriters because there are ways in which this film could have been scary while still incorporating common sense into it. Also, there are scenes where the spirits are dragging some of these characters beneath the surface of the pool where the, the people who are being victimized by the spirit of the pool are holding their breath underwater probably a lot longer than your average person could potentially hold their breath as in longer than two minutes. And it really takes a lot of skill and a lot of practice to hold your breath underwater for five minutes. For me, I'm a pretty good swimmer. I can only hold my breath underwater for about 30 seconds. And that is if I really, really try. So Night Swim is another movie that premiered in January that I expected would be in this category of films that are not particularly good. It's not terrible considering the acting talent behind it, but Night Swim still gets my rating of a strikeout because there are a lot of contrivances here that benefited from some jump scares when the characters who are supposed to be smart end up doing really dumb things when it comes to being haunted and ultimately basically walking to danger when they or swimming to danger when they really should use common sense and swim the other way. There is a way in smart horror films where smart people are conned into the bad scenarios in horror films, but the what separates the great horror films from the bad horror films is if you were in this situation, <laughs> you would probably save yourself. It, that would be your first inclination, and the great horror films know that fact, but still sucker people into or sucker their victims in to this bad spirit. But the point is that the night Night Swim doesn't quite have that respect for intelligence for their main characters. And that's really unfortunate.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. This is, of course, the second Aquaman movie after the Aquaman film from 2018, and it is the fifth film from the DC Extended Universe. And any time a movie from the DCEU comes out, my first inclination is to say, when are you going to just give up? Well, as it turns out, according to Wikipedia, Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom is the 15th film and the final installment in the DC Extended Universe. Now, this film just came out, but already some outlets are declaring this to be the last of the DC Extended Universe films. Probably there's going to be another DC Universe, but hopefully Ben Affleck stays as far away from playing Batman and Bruce Wayne as possible. Now, compare... The Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom being the 15th film in the DC Extended Universe to the Marvels, the last film in the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that is the 33rd film in the MCU. And from what I gather, the MCU, even though it's had some films that have not been particularly well-received last year, like Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, and the Marvels, it still has a ways to go, and it still has a lot of stories to tell with its superhero roster. But the DC Extended Universe is just about done. And with the quality and storytelling of Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, it really is no wonder. So in Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, Aquaman becomes the king of Atlantis while also simultaneously living a life as a civilian and as his alter ego Arthur Curry on the mainland. And Jason Momoa comes back as Aquaman, of course, and he is probably the best thing about this movie, and he's also probably the best cast of the character, well, maybe the second best cast after Gal Gadot playing Wonder Woman in the DC Extended Universe, because Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman was perfectly cast. But in this film, he's married to Mara, who is the queen of Atlantis and former princess of Zebel, who's played in this movie by Amber Heard. But considering the backlash, probably irreparable backlash, that Amber Heard has experienced in her real life, particularly her divorce from Johnny Depp, which was supposed to sideline Johnny Depp and did for a little while, but then when Revelations happened in the Amber Heard-Johnny Depp case, Amber Heard ended up getting the brunt of the punishment, and that's probably not going to stop anytime soon. But because her character Mara was such a major character, she had to be mentioned and portrayed in this film, and I think that having Mara being played by another actress probably would have been distracting. But then again, having other actors replace previous actors and sequels hasn't hurt other franchises before. And I'm talking primarily about the dark Knight, where Maggie Gyllenhaal replaced Katie Holmes in her role from Batman begins. And Maggie Gyllenhaal did such a great job with her role that people forgot about Katie Holmes, who was actually nominated for worst supporting actress at the Razzies in 2006 Maggie Gyllenhaal wasn't nominated for any major awards, but she also wasn't nominated for any Razzies either. But getting into that, the main story of Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, in addition to Aquaman being the king of Atlantis, is that there is a character by the name of Black Manta, who's played in this movie by Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, who is seeking revenge on Aquaman for his father's death which happened in the first film. And wielding the Black Trident's power, he becomes a formidable foe. And to defend Atlantis, Aquaman forges an alliance with his imprisoned brother, whose name is Orm Marius, who's played by Patrick Wilson. Now, for those of you who saw the first Aquaman, you will remember that... 
Patrick Wilson's character or Marius was an antagonist to Aquaman, but the two of them must protect the kingdom by working together. And Jason Momoa and Patrick Wilson are capable actors who actually the best scenes in this film are when they are together. Not necessarily when they're working together, but when they're also at odds with one another, particularly when Aquaman breaks out Ormarius from his aquatic prison. And while Ormarius might seem a bit grateful that he's out of prison, he also doesn't especially appreciate that his brother and his mortal enemy is the one who breaks him out. And there's a catch to it. But even though that part of the film works and there are some commendable special effects in here, I wasn't really taken in by the character of Black Manta. So he, so he's seeking revenge against um, Aquaman for presumably being responsible for his father's death. And it tells you in flashbacks that, that Black Manta's father's death was not entirely... Aquaman's fault. And I think this movie was very smart to include flashbacks. And that's one of the advantages that the DC extended universe movies, or at least this one has over the MCU films, because the MCU films has gone so far. I mean, 33 films and several TV shows into its universe that you definitely need, unless you are a huge fan who watches these films again and again and again, you need a synopsis at the very beginning. And I think that's one of the things this film does really well. But the bad guy in this film, Black Manta, isn't especially interesting. The The only character arc of his is that he wants revenge for his father's death. And in getting vengeance for his father's death, he not only goes after Aquaman, but he also wants to destroy the kingdom. Well, you need a lot more of a reason for that besides your father dying. And Yahya Abdul-Mateen II is almost always a, a really good actor. He he did a great job in the movie The Trial of the Chicago 7 playing Bobby Seale, and he also was in some other films, including he was in the HBO limited series Watchmen as Dr. Manhattan, and he did an amazing job there. And Yahya Abdul-Mateen II is one of many great actors who is great when you give him a role with a lot of dimensions, but when you give him a role of a guy who's just seeking vengeance for his father's death, and that's the only character arc you have, unfortunately, the character is very forgettable. I don't think this is going to do a lot of damage to Yahya Abdul-Mateen II's career, If anything, it's going to get him some great royalty checks, considering how well Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom is surprisingly doing at the box office right now. But there are also some other characters who could have been really deep and well-developed, played by some good actors. Like, for example, there is the king of Zebel and Mara's father, Narius, who's played by Dolph Lundgren. And it's great to see Dolph Lundgren playing another role besides the role he played in the Expendables films. But he's not given a lot of lines, and overall he just kind of smiles sort of smugly and just nods his head when things happen. There is a more slightly more developed role in this film played by Randall Park, where he plays a doctor by the name of Stephen Shin, who is a marine biologist who is obsessed with finding Atlantis and works for Black Manta, even though he doesn't know Black Manta's exact motives. I thought he made an interesting character, but overall this film was largely forgettable because the plot of the film is just some guy who wants to do more than seek vengeance for his father's death. He just wants to cause chaos. And he uses his father's death as an excuse, but honestly, there should have been more dimension to the antagonist in this film than just a dead father. So because there wasn't, and really because this film falters in the storytelling sense, Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom gets my rating of a strikeout. The reason it doesn't get my rating of a 
flunk out is because Jason Momoa and Patrick Wilson do well with the roles they're given here. I think with the controversy with Amber Heard, if she was so controversial as for the role, as for the movie to cut her role down as significantly as they had, they might as well have just cut her out. And I think that they could have either used her character um, as much as they used her in the first film or just not used her at all and maybe given her a timely death, but they don't exactly do that here. And there are also some other supporting performances here that are reduced to cameos, like Nicole Kidman, I think, is actually even in this film even less than Amber Heard is, and that is really unfair to Nicole Kidman because Nicole Kidman, unlike Amber Heard, hasn't done anything except be the actress that she usually is, which is a great actress. So Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom ends the DC Extended Universe presumably with a bit of a whimper, but they made a good choice in not having Ben Affleck make a cameo in this film like he did in The Flash. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters for the weekend of January 19th through January 21st, 2024. And I would get into the movies that are going to be released on streaming, but the truth of the matter is I don't have time to do that this week. So I'm just going to get right into the movies that are subject to being released in theaters. And one of the biggest films that is subject to being released in theaters is a movie that's called ISS. ISS stands for International Space Station. And in this film... Tensions flare in the near future aboard the International Space Station as a conflict breaks out on Earth. Reeling, the U.S. and Russian astronauts receive orders from the ground. Take control of the station by any means necessary. Now, this film has a very good cast. It has Academy Award winner Ariana DeBose as Dr. Kira Foster. It has Chris Messina, John Gallagher Jr., And the Russians in this film are played by Masha Mashkova, Kosta Ronin, and Pilo Azbak. And the movie is directed by Gabriela Kauperwaith. I don't know the director. I don't know her previous repertoire. I do know Ariana DeBose, and Ariana DeBose is definitely worth watching. She did have a bit of a hindrance to her career when she voiced the character of Asha in Wish, which was one of the worst animated films that Disney has put out in several decades. But that film being as bad as it was, was not Ariana DeBose's fault. And I actually thought that Ariana DeBose did well voicing that character. Just the fault of that film was in the story. But ISS is a film that I can't guarantee is going to be great. It certainly has a unique premise, but it also has the disadvantage of coming out in January. And whenever a sci whenever especially a sci-fi film comes out in January, that's a bad sign. But then again, The Beekeeper is a film that came out in January, and that's a film that actually surprised me pleasantly. So ISS is a film that I will see, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another movie that is subject to be released in theaters on January 19th is a movie that's called Founder's Day. I don't know exactly what Founder's Day is, but according to the synopsis, it's a holiday that takes place in a small town, and this small town is shaken by a series of ominous killings in the days leading up to a heated mayoral election, which I guess is um, <laughs> where when Founder's Day actually takes place. And the movie stars Naomi Grace, Devin Druid, William Russ, and Amy Hargreaves. A couple of familiar names here and there. 
And Founder's Day is a film that definitely looks subversive and intriguing, but it's also a horror movie that's coming out in January, which means that it might not be great, but I'm going to give the movie a chance, and I'll let you know what I think if I see it on a future show, presumably on next week's show. And another movie that's subject to being released in theaters on January 19th is a movie that's called Which Brings Me to You. It's a romantic comedy, or a romance, I should say, and it's a movie about two romantic burnouts who meet at a wedding and almost hook up in the court in the, in the coat room, that is classy, before putting the brakes on. And that movie, uh, that sentence ended with a preposition, so that makes it sound kind of clunky, but I am a film critic, not the grammar police. But anyway, they agree to exchange candid confessions about their pasts on the off chance that this might be the real thing. And in this movie, there's a very attractive couple who are playing the romantic burnouts who hook up in a closet. (laughs) Uh, They're played by Lucy Hale and John Gallagher Jr. Oh, another film starring John Gallagher. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, The couple in this film who are romantic burnouts are played by Lucy Hale and Nat Wolf. John Gallagher Jr. is in the movie, but he is a supporting character, not the lead in this film. But this is a film that looks kind of hokey, but I'm not going to make any judgments about the film because every film, in my opinion, is good until proven bad. But Which Brings Me to You is a movie that I probably will see, and if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And the last film that I'm going to cover here that's coming out or subject to being released in theaters on January 19th is a movie that's called Cult Killer. This is a movie starring Alice Eve and Antonio Banderas. And Antonio Banderas is one of those actors who look like, kind of like Nicolas Cage, he looks to be on the cusp of making a comeback. But I don't think that this is going to be the film that's going to give him his comeback. But when a renowned private investigator is murdered, his protege takes on the case. As her investigation unfolds, she is forced into a dangerous alliance with his killer to uncover the town's grisly secrets and bring justice to the victims. So as I said previously, Alice Eve and Antonio Banderas star in this film. I I don't exactly know if this film is going to be great. I never really do. But if I see this film, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. That just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures, and I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole. Until I watch a whole bunch of brand new movies, this is Dan Burke saying I'll see you at the movies.